This is episode 39 of Free as in Freedom. I'm Karen Sandler. And I'm Bradley Kuhn. And this is Freeze and Freedom. This is yet another uh, talk from FOSDEM. And we explained in the previous episode what the deal with that is. Mm-hmm. And is there anything we... Do you want to Do you want to set up this clip, Karen? You know they say that on like shows. Shows where celebrities come on. They say, do you want to set up the clip for us? Do they? Yeah. Okay. Um, do you want to set Well, you, don't, you can say it on. It doesn't need any setup. I don't think it needs to be set up, but I think it's a very interesting talk. It's on uh, uh, European copyright law and what is the definition of a derivative work. Only in your in European specifically copyright. That's what I said. Yeah, that's what you said. It's true. <laughs> uh, so the the audio, the, uh, as we talked about in the last episode, the, the audio quality was we, we hadn't been in this room before, and and we were using different equipment and. Therefore, the audio quality, I think this might be one of the worst ones, actually, as far as audio quality goes. Um, obviously, the indices are in the show notes if you want to skip the talk and just hear our comments on it. Uh, if it's, if it, uh, Dan's going to do his best, I'm sure, to make it sound good, but he only can work with what we give him. And in this case, it may not be. Oh, and I would say that, actually, if you... Um if you're sort of having the, a hard time with the audio and are waning and listening to it, skipping ahead to sort of the end and hearing the Q and A, I thought was really uh, was really great, just on its own too. Yeah, and the questioners are, are audible. That's the funniest part. Mm-hmm. Louder than yeah. yeah. Well, it's, well, we put the mic halfway in between the speaker and the audience in the hopes that it would pick up the audience as well. And well, you can hear what happened. <laughs> and uh, we'll be back uh, after. I, well, kind of like me to say we're back. It will be back. <laughs> We'll return to discuss the talk afterwards, and if you want to skip it, look in the show notes for the indices of where to skip to. Great. Okay. Well, thank you very much for coming to the Legal Issues and Policy Dev Room. We're going to continue now with Phil Yeager. Thank you very much. Welcome, everybody. Um, I have some heavy legal stuff for you, uh, European copyright law, but I think uh, the question of uh, what is a derivative work is important and interesting for most of you. Uh, why is it the case? So um, I have here something from the Eclipse FAQ, legal FAQ, um, telling the people about uh, what is a derivative work, and uh, that's what you find often in FAQ, or uh, if you ask project or something. Um, we require you to seek the advice of your own legal counsel in deciding whether your program constitutes a derivative work. So um, there's no detailed information, so just ask your lawyer. So people come to me, I'm a lawyer, asking uh, what is a derivative work? And uh, the answer 
is uh, quite easy. I don't know. <laughs> and that's exactly why you have these FAQ, because these people don't know, but lawyers don't know either. So I want to explain here a little bit why we do we don't know what is the derivative work and uh, a little bit also how to handle this. But this talk is about derivative work in the sense of Euro European copyright. This is no interpretation of the GPL. This is nothing about US copyright law or any copyright law in the world. So it's just to give you an inside view in what we know about that under European copyright law. And then you will see that in the end I have more questions than answers, but you know, questions are the first step to answers, and uh, this is more an initial thing to start discussion because we have not enough discussion about that, and we have people talking about that, but mostly without much background from both sides. That means the technical side and the legal side. And you will see this question is very strongly connected to technical and legal issues. And you have often people from the legal side with no idea about uh, uh, architecture of software and you have uh, uh, developers talking about without any or mostly not much knowledge about copyright law and that makes it so difficult. So um, let's start, why is it so important? Of course, it's uh, the question of copyleft. If you look in copyleft licenses as GPL, as AGPL, as Eclipse Public License or Common Public License, that means nearly half of all free software you find so-called copyleft clauses saying that um, you have to license your developments which are derivative works or modifications, sometimes the wording is different, under the same license. So, um, yeah, if, if you write code, you have to know which one you have to license under the very same license. And uh, the problem is um, to know what is a derivative work and what's not. Um, this is and that's why I do not completely agree with the panel here, who heard the panel. It's not only a question mixing proprietary software and free software, but it's also a question of compatibility. So copyleft has a strong impact of mixing free software code. You can't mix Eclipse public license code with GPL code. That's not possible. That's that's, uh, that, and that's why it's not only about proprietary software. Of course, most people have this concern <coughs> who do not want to, to publish uh, their proprietary software, but uh, the question is relevant for both. So, my approach to this question is, you, you have to see there's no case law in Europe about that. I will explain why there is no case law. And you have no really explanations and statutory law and even the law books about that question. 
and that makes it more more complicated uh, to know hmm, how do we start with that question. And my approach is to look in the directive, in the copyright directive, uh, and see what do we find there? Is there something we can work with? And one problem in, in, in this context is the, the copyright directive is from 91. And in 91, as you know, it was the year of starting the Linux, and at that time, free software has not much impact on the industrial world. And that's why, of course, uh, the lawmakers didn't really consider concepts like copyleft or free software licensing. And at that time, the question of derivative work didn't matter at all, because companies kept their source code, so it was technically not really possible um, to modify other people's code. And in most cases, there was an agreement between two companies, yeah, you're allowed uh, to modify it for your, your own interest, and then it's not really a legal question what is a derivative work or not, because you have a license for that. And that's, in my opinion, the reason um, why you have no case law in the proprietary world. There is a little bit, for example, in the US, uh, for companies that sold software modules for computer games, and in, in this area you find something. But you will see uh, this is something where we have information under uh, European copyright law, but this is only one particular aspect of modifying other people's code. So here, free software licensing is having really an impact on the law, on copyright law, but until now we have no statutory law dealing with that, no initiative on the, on the on the level of the European Union to change uh, the copyright directive in, in a way explaining or respecting the question. Uh, another reason why um, it's quite difficult to find to a solution. But let's have a look on the directive. So the directive is, as I explained from 91, Officially, there's a new one from 2009, and, uh, but it's uh, basically the same wording as the 91 directive. And this directive is European law that means this is law that has to be transformed into national law in the European Union. And all countries in the European Union have in their copyright laws um, the mandatory law from the directive that is more or less the same. Mostly, for example, in Germany, even the wording is the same, because at that time, they were very, very uh, careful about not to make a mistake, not understanding really the, the rules at that time. So I think roughly we can say in, in European countries, the software copyright law is pretty the same. And 
we have a lot of case law of the European Court in this regard. The courts in the, in the countries of the European Union, they are obliged to interpret their own laws according to the European directive. So in the end, they should all come to the same conclusion what a derivative work under European copyright laws. They wouldn't never, but they should. <laughs> and if there is a case in any country and the interpretation is unclear, and it is, that case would come to the European Court in Luxembourg <coughs> to decide what is the understanding there. So there will be a, a unified understanding of uh, derivative work in the European Union. But if you look in that directive, you will find no definition. That's not surprising because I explained there was no need for that. And the term was in the, or is in the directive because it's a general term of copyright. So of course, in this directive, you will find all kinds of rights like the copyright, the distribution right, uh, the rental rights and so on, and of course also the right to make derivative works. In the directive, it's called adaptation. Adaptation and transformation, but it means pretty the same. So, if we look in the text, I found something very interesting in this directive. And that is that the directive has very much to do with interoperability of software. And that is interesting because that is something that is different from other works. And that makes it so difficult because otherwise we could say, so let's look what is a derivative work in photography, in music, or literature, and let's, and let's transmit that interpretation into software law. But that doesn't work. Why? Because software is intended to be interoperable. And that's something that does not exist in other fields of copyright law. So if we look at the recital 10 of the directive, we find the function of computer programs to communicate and work together with other components of the computer system and with users and for this purpose, a logical and where appropriate physical interconnection and interaction is required to permit all elements of software and hardware to work with other software and hardware and with users in all the ways in which they are intended to function. That means software is intended to work together. We'll see, what does that mean? And does this has any effect on the interpretation of what a derivative work is? What we see, what we see else here? Recital 15, these recitals are a kind of background and explanations to the directive. 
the red directive is quite short. So these recitals are important for the interpretation. They are not the law himself. Okay? And there we find the unauthorized reproduction, translation, adaptation, our derived word issue, or a transformation of the form of the code in which a copy of a computer program has been made available constitutes an infringement of the exclusive rights of the author. Okay, that means adaptation without license is generally spoken a copyright infringement. But nevertheless, circumstances may exist when such a reproduction of the code and translation of its form are indispensable to obtain the necessary information to achieve the interoperability of an independently created program with other programs. We, we will see there is a, a kind of a breakthrough saying, well, for the goal of interoperability, it might be that you do not need a license. However, it's allowed to adapt, to copy, to bring two programs into interoperability. Furthermore, we find a, a, a definition of interoperability. Interoperability can be defined as ability to exchange information and mutually to use information which has been exchanged. Okay. Well, that's something we can work with. And we have in Article 6 um, a limitation of copyright, an exception, saying that you are allowed to decompile interface if you want to provide interoperability between your own program and other people's programs. Of course, that's something that does not exist in copyright, in other copyright law, or in, for other words. And that's something that's very specific to software. So, if you think about decompilation is allowed, you can look in other people's code as long as this is necessary and concerning the interface. It would be not logical to say, yeah, you're allowed to write your own program that is interoperable to another program, but you're not, to, you're not allowed to distribute it or to sell it. That wouldn't be really logical. That means you're allowed to distribute, to use all kinds of copyright use your interoperable program, if this program is an independently created computer program. So how does it work? Here we have the next important expression term in the directive, and that is the term interface, recital 10. The parts of a program which provide for such interconnection 
and interaction between elements of software and hardware are generally known as interfaces. This functional interconnection and interaction is generally known as interoperability. <coughs> Such interoperability can be defined and that we have already seen exchange of information. That means in the idea of the ones who wrote this directive, apparently, first of all, exchange of data is something that happens between independent programs. It's just exchange of information does not make two pieces of code a derivative work. I think we can extract that or make this interpretation. We see interoperability is typical for independent computer programs. Perhaps does not mean that inside one computer program there can't be interoperable parts. That's something else. Interoperability is strongly connected to the term interface. And if we have these conclusions, we can ask is a logical follow-up that interfacing is a criterion to distinguish independent works. So I think that's something worse to think about. And let's have a look on what, what's happening out there when software is written and combined and made interoperable. So we have classical classical interfaces like IPC, interprocess communication. Yeah? I think that's something that falls under the scope of interface and interchanging information. We have the definition. That's something that programs do that are interoperable. That usually, I think, does not fall under the heading of derivative work. It is just IPC. Um, similar, I think, application binary interfaces, so applications for Linux, for example, doing system calls in the kernel. You know we have this special note of Linus Torvalds saying um, normal, normal system calls, not all system calls, normal system calls do not fall under the heading of derivative work. I think Linus is right with that. It's not changing the GPL, but explaining that, clarifying that. Um, I think that that's a case I would I would think that is uh, just using an API is not something that creates a derivative work. Although, although the application cannot run without the operating system. So there is something 
between these two programs, there is an interdependency, but not a derivative work. And I think that's mainly it's mainly the interpretation of nearly all the people who who look yeah, just in a moment uh, what is a derivative work and not. But these are classical interfaces we have already known in 91. What is with other types of software programming? I'm not a programmer. I don't know all what's outside there and what's happening uh, on software development. But if you look in object-oriented systems like Java, very modular software development, can you say these are all small programs because they use interfaces or kind of interfaces between each other? I think that is not necessarily true. All kind of plugins, subclassing and so on. These are questions, I don't know difficult to say if this is this completely comparable to APC, IPC and ABI. And in, in, in my perspective, and that is a common trap, is can we really define the understanding of derivative work only by technical methods. And I don't think that this is the case. I think that the technology and the kind of the architecture of the software has a strong impact of if this is has to be considered a derivative work. Because interfacing is a crucial point there. But from the perspective of a copyright lawyer, you never look only on technology because the question is what is one work and what are two works, independent works is not only a question of technology. To, to, give, you, to give you some examples where you could think about is, um, for example, you have a, an application and you want to add a functionality. What you can do is just writing the code, the changing the code that you have in this application and this is clearly a derivative work. Mm -hmm. But of course any programmer could shift that functionality in their own piece, in their own model, module and perhaps write a socket interchanging information just to put it out of this program. Does this already mean that he created an independent written program in the sense of copyright? I don't think so. Why? Uh, that's a different kind of thinking between lawyers and programmers. So what is called a workaround for programmers, and that's something good to have a workaround to find a solution for a problem, 
lawyers think differently for, their, for them, that might be a circumvention. And courts do not like circumventions. If they have the feeling that's one, that's one program and it's only artificially put out in another module, they will consider it as a derivative work in, in my opinion. I explained that you are allowed to decompile to, to bring a program into interoperability, but that does not mean that you are allowed to change other people's programs behind the interface. If you have free software, that's easily possible. You can change a program change the interface or the program behind the interface and then add your own code to work with that interface? Is that really the same situation? Or is it more something that goes in the direction of circumventing? I think there are no general answers. Sorry for that. So I'll give you give you one practical example. If you look for the for kernel modules for the Linux kernel. I think there are many, many good arguments to say that's a derivative work. These are mostly hardware drivers for Linux. They are for the kernel. They are integrated into the kernel and so on. If you say this is a derivative work, okay. If you look for a new architecture, UIO, that means you can write drivers in the user space, you could say, okay, that's a circumvention. But on the other hand, you have really changed the architecture. There's no integration into the kernel as kernel modules. So I would say there are good arguments to say, no, that's not a derivative work if you have a, a driver in the user space. But of course you can discuss that. I just want to show there are a lot of different arguments possible. It's not only a technical question, but a mixer, mixture of how is the technical architecture and how is an interpretation of what is an independent program and what's not an independent program. And um, therefore, for example, a, there's a big discussion, are libraries derivative works of the program that's using the library? In my opinion, there's no only technical answer, yes, always it is a derivative work or it's never a derivative work. It's depending, in my, in my opinion, from the situation. Is it a standard library? Is it something that's part only of one program and not really used with other programs and so on? But uh, you see, um, these are questions, uh, and my opinion is just one legal opinion under many legal opinions, and that's not the absolute truth. Uh, but I hope that is a starting point for a discussion on really on the basics of copyright law as far 
as your copyright law is concerned. So, coming to an end before we start with some questions, um, a short disclaimer from my side again, this is only an interpretation of the European Copyright Directive, it has nothing to do with what is a derivative work in other countries, it might be completely different. It uh, does not mean that in the copyleft licenses, the meaning is the same as a copyright law. So if you look, for example, in GPL2, you have some paragraphs with explanation what a derivative work is that might change the perspective. And uh, however, what we think here about, uh, we always will have the risk if any courts would decide that, that they come to completely different conclusions uh, because in my experience often courts have not much technical knowledge and that makes decisions quite unforeseeable. So don't, don't blame me if, if courts make something completely different. Yeah, if uh, you're interested in uh, these questions, of course you can have a look on uh, our iFrost website. This is a <coughs> institute for legal questions of free and open source software. We have a commentary of the GPL2 that is, of course, uh, a practical view on section 2 of the GPL, but unfortunately only in, in German. You have uh, the website of the Free Software Foundation with a lot of interpretation what they consider what a derivative work is. Um, and about the copyright directive, I have written an article that's also on the IFROS website, but only in German, sorry. So that is my presentation in this regard. I'm open to questions, thank you. So I think that your uh, example of Linux kernel modules is very interesting. If we take the letter of the European Directive around the word interoperability, we might come to a technical conclusion that a Linux kernel module is not a derivative work. But taken using your context of architecture, it seems like perhaps it would be a derivative work. So if I came to you and I said, I have written a brand new Linux kernel module that is a completely original work of authorship. I have not copied any other Linux kernel module code. I make the argument to you that I own the copyright on my original code. Is, it, is there any way that you could make an argument that because it works in this Linux architecture that it is not a derivative work? So, one thing is clear. The code you have written, you have your own copyright. That's absolutely clear. The question is, do you have a license, your copyright under the GPL or other copyleft licenses, if you distribute that with other code? So, for kernel modules, uh, 
you could start with the argument, yeah, there is a kernel interface. So if you look at the directive, it seems, yeah, there's an interface. Might be two independent programs. If you have a closer look, you will find other arguments you have to look at. For example, uh, so that's what kernel developers told me. I, I'm not one, so uh, I, can, I can just uh, tell you what they said to me. That the, the kernel interface has changed during the, the, the years. And in the beginning, it was perhaps much more apart from the kernel. But at the moment, by technologies like hooks and other stuff, it's much more integrated in the kernel. And you see, if you have a, a bug in the kernel module, the complete, the complete uh, kernel fails. And that is a, a strong hint that it's more just only an interface exchanging information. That's more. And that's why I have the opinion that in most cases, kernel modules are derivative works, but I have also seen examples where I came to a different conclusion for different reasons, but it's the normal hardware driver, I would say, is a derivative. Does the invention of, of the older or the original work, the work you write for, uh, make any difference in the Please repeat the question. Yeah, that's a very yeah. That's a very good. That's a very good question. Uh, the question is, does it matter what is the intention of the original work, the, the author of the original work? First of all, in the sense of copyright law, doesn't matter. It's it's an independent work or derivative work or not. In the sense of software licensing, it does matter. Give you an example. Uh, I have written my own code. I put it on my website, and I tell the people, um, this is licensed under the GPL, and I'm of the opinion that this and that makes it a derivative work. That perhaps you might have changed the idea of the GPL in this case, but it matters. It matters. At least uh, in in European courts. I don't know elsewhere, but here there would be an interpretation. What's the meaning of the license? And uh, of course, it matters what the author tells you at the moment of licensing. It does not matter what you have in your head. It matters what the licensee can learn in the moment he received the license. So if the software is just distributed with a license text, it might be different. Just in, in addition, um, so is it considered for software projects generally helpful to make this visible um, for their communities as well? And um, isn't it also the obligation of somebody who wants to license a software and who has got this question open, what is a derivative work or not, and we now know this is a question everybody has, to first of all clarify this um, while licensing the software. Um, dangerous. Yeah. <laughs> Just ask that's, Yeah, that's a good question. So, perhaps some comments. Um, 
dangerous if you have not only your own code in the project. Because if you use other people's code, have perhaps a different understanding. You can't say this is my understanding or the project's understanding because in that case, you put to take GPL code from someone else, it's only the GPL that matters or the text of the GPL. Apart from that, let's assume that the complete code is written by the project and all the members of the project have a common understanding. Uh, well, Yes, it is, in general, helpful to explain to people what is your ideas. So when I think about um, content management systems, people asking extensions, is that a derivative <coughs> word, templates, and so on, to clarify what you want, yeah, that's helpful. On the other hand, if every project has their different understanding, that would really make it much more complicated to find license compliance. So I think uh, in that regard, it would be a bad idea. <coughs> so uh, I think what, what Eclipse Public License and what the, the Eclipse Foundation did to say, okay, people, we have some clear-cut cases in our opinion. We explain to have not too much trouble questions. Yes, you find that in the FAQ. But there are difficult questions, borderline questions. Please ask your lawyer. Is he don't want to explain a clear situation? I think that's fine. Yeah, that's what I told you. That could be the case then because if a project has a clear understanding what is not not the one that would be the right one if you interpret the GPL correctly, nobody knows. Uh, in this case, yeah, you would create a compatibility, compatibility problem. That's why I, I said only in clear cases it's fine, <coughs> but not in the, in the difficult ones. <coughs> if they have so much focus on the interfaces, wouldn't that wipe out the difference between GPL and LGPL because they basically use the same interfaces to connect applications to libraries? Well, I mean, it could be this derivative, derivative work or not, but it should be the same for both. Please your question. Let's. Harrod, do you want to say something? <laughs> Please remember, the European Copyright Directive says an interface to exchange data. It's not necessarily an API where you make functions. Right? There's a distinction between, I think, an interface where you purely exchange data and something like a programming interface with hundreds of functions that you call, which cause all kinds of functionality to happen in the program, which is not just a mere exchange of data. Libraries are always a borderline case. Let's let's take it from this perspective. Uh, the LGPL is written in ninety one, I think. The GPL is older. 
So I think you can't make an interpretation of the GPL by using the LGP. The LGPL is written by the Free Software Foundation, and the Free Software Foundation has a clear understanding, a clear position about that libraries are always uh, building a derivative work with the pro programs using the library. It might be different in, in some cases under European law, might be the case. So let's be careful. <coughs> the interface perspective is a European one. I don't know if, if this is the same one in the US. You said intent does not matter, intent of the author of the original work with respect to copyright law. You think it still doesn't matter in terms of where you decide the interface is? So if you publish an API, that's not an act that says, okay, that? That's something different. You're, you're, you're correct. Um, if you are the author of your program and you write an interface, of course, this has a strong impact because it's your architecture decision, and you are opening your program for interoperability, and that makes it possible and legally possible for others to write their programs interfacing with that with your program. So that that makes a big difference, if especially for free software. So. If you have written your, as an author, your own interface, I would say other programs you think that interface are independent. But if I change your program and write a new interface and write my program, that's not the same. Now, uh, considering the discussion about kernel modules, I was wondering, you specifically target hardware drivers, but uh, a very common discussion in kernel development is uh, drivers like, for example, file systems. There has been quite a discussion about CFS being on the CDDL, which is incompatible with the GPL and therefore can't be implemented. But then again, someone has actually made a kernel module which offers CFS options. So would that be, well, if that was a derivative work of the kernel, that would actually be illegal in some way then? Could be. So I'm not too much in, in technology to, to consider this case. So my general approach is kernel modules are derivative works, and if they are not licensed under the GPL, that at least is a problem. Might be that the situation is so specific. So um, I remember a post of Linus Torvalds saying, okay, there's a file system that existed already before Linux. Perhaps that shows it's an independent one, but uh, that's uh, a very difficult question. Okay. Uh, yeah, not a question. Uh, just one more question. Uh, a little bit louder, please. Uh, what would be uh, the definition of an intentional interface? Because, for instance, you can say, uh, I've written a Java class, and I've not written some methods that you can access it, but uh, the whole uh, Java application allows me to subclass every class in the application. Um, so I can create an interface uh, without the intention, but 
it was the international programming language that they could make such a policy. I, I said that before. Anything that is in object-oriented systems, uh, very difficult to tell you if the idea and the impact of interfaces and the European directive is really you can transfer these things to, to this kind of programming. I just don't know. There are reasons in favor, there are reasons against. Might be that this new kind of programming makes derivative work smaller, smaller. Might be that courts come to the conclusion, no, that's strongly connected, has to be considered one word. Difficult, I can't say that. Okay, I thank you very much. So Bradley has notes that I can't even read. Uh, I can't read them either. Are they sufficient? <laughs> Maybe. I don't know. <laughs> anyway, I thought it was interesting to get a, um, a perspective on European copyright law on this derivatives works question because I find it sometimes annoying that this is sort of like one of the, one of the topics that people like to talk about all the time. It's like the favorite topic. And there's not really that much to go on. As um, uh, as Till mentions that uh, it's it's unclear in Europe, and it's uh, we've discussed in previous shows that there it's a little unclear in the United States as well. Yeah, I, I mean I respect Till a lot. He's uh, mm. for those who didn't know already, he's Howard Velta's lawyer uh, and done the legal work for GPLviolations.org. Yeah, he's got a lot of experience, and, and and so and so he's the one he's he's one of the few European lawyers I really respect heavily because he's actually there's not many of them who have worked uh, to help Olivier Hugo in France has worked with Conservancy and FSF France to do some enforcement as well uh, but there aren't there aren't many just like there's not many lawyers in the US that have done enforcement <laughs> there aren't many lawyers in Europe who've done enforcement until is one of them yeah it's really cool so getting uh, a discussion from him is pretty pretty cool well one of the interesting things I, I want to talk before we get into the content I want to talk about this so so I know that till represents uh, other companies as well and it seems like in Europe it's easier not to become persona non grata for representing violators uh, representing uh, enforcers right I mean because there's like in the US it sort of seems like there's one side or the other well it's sort of persona non grata is sort of a weird way of saying it are you talking about the um, the requirements for zealously advocating for clients and I'm how not sure. it's tough to be on both sides I don't see that many I people in the United think States. That in Europe, those client confidentiality, the zealous representation rules, I don't know firsthand, but from what I've heard, it sounds like they're not nearly as rigorous. Well, I'm told things lax. are different in Europe, but uh, I, 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 in just a general sense. And I don't really know what that means. People keep telling me that. I don't understand what's different and why, and they won't tell me. But the one thing I observe is that in the United States, it's, it's not really a complex issue. It's more of a... Once you do work on one side, you won't do work. You don't do work on the other. For example, I, I'd be skeptical. So, so me as a client, you know, as an executive of a client organization, I'm skeptical about hiring 
a lawyer who in the U at least in the U.S. who has done work for violators. I'm just I, I skeptical about are they really on my side? Uh, you know, can you know? I, I would be skeptical about it. That's interesting because I I think that that's but I think that that's connected to these uh, issues about client confidentiality and zealous representation. It's because you feel like there's something special about your relationship with your attorney and that you know and the clients that your attorney has represented in the past have that special relationship too. And so having crossing lines is really difficult and because of that in the United States when you change roles you have to go through or or take on a new client you have to go through these procedures in order to make sure that you don't have any conflicts of interest or conflicts mm. of representation. And then do they not do that in Europe or is it I different? I don't know. In okay. I mean I do know that when I was working at an English law firm we had um, a conflicts process well, already but, built but in. But English that's not a common law system, right? Right. And we should I should explain that so um, so the U.S. and Canada and the U.K. are common law systems, and the European system is not a common law system. Is that right, Karen? So we're going to get to this a little bit more in Maureen's talk. Oh, okay. So okay. let's save that. Okay, that's fine. Okay. Uh, although she didn't really talk about that in great detail. I thought... Okay. Uh, anyway, so... so okay. I mixed anyway. it anyway, so... What's that? <laughs> I mixed it in this talk anyway. Okay, that's fine. <laughs> so, uh, so anyway, I, I certainly Till has, has represented Harold and, and done a lot of the cases that Harold has done, so, so he's looked at this issue. There are lawyers but, in the United States that have sort of worked somewhat on both sides. I mean, Louis Villa is sort of one of those place, people that you can point to because he was in Mozilla, which is a nonprofit. I'm not saying he worked in I, I've no, I've never... Yeah, that's but, my point. Uh, but still represented a nonprofit, and then went ahead and went to work for a, um, you know, went to work for a a a known GPL violation defender named Heather Meeker. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> and then, well, now he's at Wikimedia, so he's back in the nonprofit yeah, space. Yeah, but, so that's, but again, that's neither again Wikimedia. Ne- well, neither Wikimedia. That's going back and forth between nonprofits and law firms, but not. Uh, I I don't know. I don't think Wikimedia does any sort of GPL enforcement. I certainly know Mo- Mozilla may do some minor. I actually I've never heard of them doing MPL enforcement. They've never talked about it. They've never said that they do. Uh, the MPL is is such a pathetically weak copy left that it sort of seems to me you wouldn't have to enforce. It's like it doesn't do that much. Um, yeah, I mean, I guess you're right. That's that's definitely. I, I'm sure Mozilla, Mozilla does a lot of trademark enforcement. I would bet Lewis worked on some trademark enforcement matters at Mozilla. Well, what about Richard Fontana? So yeah, Richard Fontana switched sides. It's true. Although although I've never known Red Hat to violate the GPL, so it's never been an issue. But he would be on that side if Red Hat violated the GPL. He'd be on the other side of the table. Well, but but I just mean yeah, you're right. I'm making that nonprofit for profit distinction. Yeah, it's 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 well. more of a violator non violator distinction. Yeah. Not, not that for profits and and actually we'll get to this in. But it's hard to anticipate in the AGPL talk um, about about for profit enforcement of copyleft. But uh, you'll hear that later. So right. so let's get back to what, what so so I, one of the one of the issues and, and maybe uh, maybe folks weren't as frustrated with Till's talk than I was because I already knew some of the information he was presenting, but the the key was he was saying the courts don't really know yet. He sort of was a, was giving a, a full talk of the courts don't know. That's what I felt. Which is, Which is often, true. <laughs> I, mean, I was going to say, and it's often the case in these legal issues. And I, I've given talks like that too and sat through many others where it's sort of like, we don't know. But what I liked about this is that he really gave a strong opinion about what he thought. Yeah, I, I think... And he broke down the analysis. I think there was some danger in his use of the word interfaces. I was really troubled by that part of his talk. And I don't think he was... 
he, he was talking, and Harold actually chimed in at the very end, pointing out, which I was glad he cla- Harold clarified this, because Harold realized that there was a group of, en- it was a bunch of engineers who right. were hearing the word differently. And with the interfaces argument that Till was making, and Harold clarifies this at the end, as you heard, was that interfaces, uh, data interfaces, i.e. how the data moves out of your program into another program, that's the interfaces Till was talking about, like, mm-hmm. don't create a derivative work. Uh, but library interfaces, APIs, he wasn't talking about that. And I think when Till spoke about it, it was a little confusing. It was confusing to me as an engineer having a lot of baggage with the word interfaces. And Till has his own sort of definition there because he's thinking it from the legal perspective. Well, this happens sometimes with lawyers and legal terms because they're specific and they're, uh, they're defined. Yeah. And then, you know, you, when you use them to describe another area, and especially something like copyright where so many concepts have been brought in from other areas that are not related to software. Yeah, back, back when there was a, a open discussion group for uh, for legal issues in free software, which doesn't really exist anymore, it was called Open Bar. Someone on the Open Bar list actually tried to argue to me once that clearly a binary made from source code was not derivative, but it was a compilation because after all, the process of turning source into a binary is called compilation. Oh, seriously? Seriously. Wow. Uh, I wrote this big post basically saying, uh, engineers, I don't understand why they pick the words they do for things like artificial intelligence. A lot of these phrases we use in software and computer science research are sort of the wrong words I anyway. I think that's but, true in a lot of areas. As you get like terms of art, that's why we have yeah, the expression. Yeah. yeah. But they argued that the term of art compilation meant that source code, that binaries couldn't possibly be derivative. They had to be compilations of source code <laughs> because they were compilations. Uh, I, I think the person was actually, I think it was Richard Fontana who told me, do you realize they were trolling you, right? And, and I, Oh, really? That's what, that's what somebody said to me. I don't know if it was Richard or somebody else, but somebody told me that somebody told me in a back channel, you know they were just trolling you, right? Wow. I was like, oh, I didn't even realize. I thought they were being serious. Um, but yeah, so so th- so that that's an issue like that. Interfaces. What 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 is an interface between two programs? Well, there's different types of interfaces, and the type matters uh, with regard to whether or not it's derivative work. I think Till was trying to say that. Harold clarified it at the end yeah. from the audience. Yeah. Well, I thought that was good, and I thought I was really glad that he gave this talk because I had a slightly different impression of uh, what constituted derivative work from talking to or being around European lawyers in the past. So, well, Till made it very clear he was stating his own opinion. Oh, yes. So, so it's. But I, now I, we have an opinion for someone who has a lot of experience and who has a, a great record. Mm-hmm. Um, you know. Well, and something something he said about uh, about European courts, which is very much true in the United States too, because I've actually been in U.S. courts where judges were opining about stuff like this. Uh, courts really hate workarounds, Till said. He says, he, he says this thing in the talk where he says, well, engineers, they're always doing a workaround. And, they, and, and then in this case, in the derivative work case, they wanted to find some workaround. And it's like courts don't like things like workarounds where you try to make something look like it's not a derivative work when it would have been if you did it the most straightforward way. Right. And, and U.S. courts are like that, too. When I was going to say. Yeah, when you work really hard to try, like, oh, I did all this extra stuff, and I'm just reminded of, of, of well, a... Well, it depends on the court, because yeah. some of them, they say, oh, well, look at all this extra work. True, true. Uh, but I, I've, I've seen many a judge it, it be presented with derivative work arguments and, and not be swayed by the various workarounds. Because lawyers are always coming into these courts trying to pull one over on judges. I mean, if, if people have never seen, I don't know if European courts, European, I, I sort of imagine, because people tell me things are different in Europe, I sort of imagine European courts are more formal. But U.S. courts, these these lawyers come in and they and the judges know they're going to try to pull some wool over their eyes. And the judges are like, are like ah, uh, shut up. I don't know what you're saying. <laughs> my, my favorite part, my favorite thing is watching the Supreme Court um, 
you know, which is actually the highest court, and you would think would be the most formal. Here, listening to those hearings where the um, the justices just interrupt. And it did ask, not. What are you referring to? It did not. <laughs> so, <laughs> so um, recently, uh, so uh, folks who don't know in the U.S., uh, you might miss it. Was a minor news item. You might have missed it. Is this the Clarence Thomas? That's thing? that's okay. what I was talking about. So yeah, you didn't miss it. You knew it. I knew you'd know what it was. I, I knew you would know what it was. Um, yeah, Is so, that what he said? For, yes. That, okay. Those are the three words that he said. So, so there's a headline that right. basically just said that he had spoken after how many years of not speaking? I think it was 12, right? It was a 14, lot of years of like not, not speaking at all on the yeah, bench. Yeah, he's, he's never spoke. He's never asked a question spoken in the in the transcript. Um, and one speculates whether he speaks in the chambers meetings that the Supreme Court has. But certainly he hadn't spoken. And it, it was apparently like Scalia said something about where he went to law yeah, school. Yeah, it was something about Yale. Yeah, and then and then so he said it did not, and then he stopped talking as if he'd forgotten he wasn't supposed to speak. It's almost like he, he, maybe somebody like 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 he's he's being. Well, people. Yeah, are, I wonder if he's being like being like like somebody told him I'm going to kill you if you ever speak. Like that's like that's how I, quickly no, he shut I, up. I, I think that the, <laughs> it's like it did not, oh my gosh, I'm not supposed to speak. I'm going to kill. I think kill. the justices have mixed views about how these hearings, you know, how these hearings go and what their participation levels should be because I think people listen to them they as did if. Not. They're predictive of how the the justices are going to go, and like they think that if they listen to the hearings, like we had this with Bilski, remember yeah. we were listening to the hearing and say, oh, well, it's definitely going to be this way because listen to this question and that question, and they this justice really gets it, and that justice it did doesn't. Not. But it it did not, <laughs> you know, like you, it's like reading tea leaves is the thing, and so I think that I think that you know when it comes down to questions of law, sometimes what what transpires in the hearing isn't related to you know to what the decision looks like anyway. Yeah, but my my point here is is the judges, and you see this in Supreme Court hearings, just like any other with any other judge in the United States. Judges don't like when the lawyers for either side are trying to mess with them and trying to be disingenuous and trick them into something because the judges have read the briefs and they know what's going on. And, and that's why I think what Till's getting at. He says judges don't like workarounds. It's probably the same in Europe as in the U.S. when they see somebody who put all this effort in to try to pretend like they weren't creating a derivative work. That's that's not going to look good to a judge. Yeah, except that sometimes judges really point to all that extra work and say, look, they didn't even have to do that extra work, and they did all that extra work, and therefore there's, you know, there's all this extra value, and how could it be so straightforward when they've done this, this, and that? Yeah, but we didn't see that in, in Oracle v. Google. We didn't see that in a no, lot of No, but there's cases. a lot of reference to it in the decision in Oracle yeah. v. Google, which is what reminded me of it. Yeah. So so we'll, we'll, we'll see if, if a judge ever makes that kind of decision. I, I feel like... People who are trying to do workarounds are, are less likely to to be successful. I mean, it's similar to what happened in, in Duke Nukem and so forth, where they, they they did all this work to make sure you just dropped a file in, and we never actually distributed Duke Nukem. And the judge said it was, uh, and the court said it was derivative. So that's a question of law. Um, and one on appeal. Didn't go to the Supreme Court, of course. Well, but. that's the thing. Um, so uh, so the last thing that that was of interest to me that. Till said, he said that the words in GPL itself would influence judges about their interpretation of derivative works, which I've never had a U.S. lawyer say that. U.S. lawyers basically have this analysis. They see either GPL is a contract or it's a copyright license. Um, sometimes they say it has to be a contract. Well, of course, in a contract in the U.S., you can make it say anything you want that's legal. you can legally contract for, and therefore the words matter. In a copyright license, the words are not going to matter with regard to what's a derivative work because it's a matter of law. A license can't define, if it's just a copyright permission, can't define what the creation of a derivative work is. Am I right? I, I look at the lawyer and ask. I know. I mean, I'm just, I'm just trying to think about how, how this plays out in the context of uh, 
of the GPL because I think that in what Chill was saying, because I think that actually sometimes the choice of words do matter in a copyright license as well, you know, because it's what to what extent you're granting a license. But you're right, this is about the operation of law. Well, I think, and I think the words matter in weak copyleft licenses, things like LGPL, mm. like MPL, because that's saying that there are certain types of derivative works you don't have to release under this license. But when you take a strong copyleft that says all derivative works are under this license, full stop. Um, I think I think it's I think it's much more of an issue. Now the 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 thing I think Till was thinking of is these is these weird words in GPLv2. And one of the drafting facts of GPLv2 is 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 drafted in this in this context of the FSF being worried that someone's going to declare the license copyright abuse because there was that fear right. that it might be abusive to to use a copyright license this way. Which today we look at that and sort of like, well, how, how can you imagine? When I mean, if, if anybody's doing copyright abuse, it's people who make it criminal to infringe copyright and all that sort of thing. <laughs> but uh, which is it's criminal to infringe copyright in a lot of situations. But in, in, in when you look at GPL, it's relatively benign compared to what the MPAA and the RAA use copyright for. But at the time, people were speculating that oh, maybe doing something novel with copyright law like this would be considered abuse of your copyrights. In which case the GPL wanted really hard to make sure that it was not trying to do that. And there's, and there's a lot of wording. If you read GPLv2, you'll, you'll run into a lot of phrases like, it's not the intent of this license to do foo, it's only trying to do bar. Uh, and the reason that's there, as far as I know, uh, from what I've done from studying historical drafting, was because of this. So I was thinking Till was probably thinking of those kinds of words. See, where, I thought he was talking about like language around the license, not the license itself. Oh no, so, he was talking about. I think he was talking about text he, of he the was license. Also I, talking about words in, I wrote that words in the GPL, nav push ka, whatever that means. <laughs> um, but. <laughs> <laughs> I yeah. Well, I don't know. I mean, I guess I, I I need to listen to it again to hear exactly what he was, he was talking, talking about. But I know words, he did also talk about... It says about, there, like, words in GPL. I don't know what the rest of that in my notes says, FAQs, but words in GPL it says. You know, FAQs and things like that. No, he was definitely not talking no, about... No, he did talk about that. He did talk about FAQs, but in this quote that I wrote and down... And about, like, people sort of saying the words what their in GPL. interpretation of derivative words It says words are. in GPL. I know I wrote that down right from what Till said. I don't think he said, not push ka, whatever, whatever <laughs> that next thing says. It sounds like it looks like it's Klingon, but... <laughs> But it was the words in the I'm GPL. studying it yeah. because I, I think, but you know what? I can't, I was looking at your other, uh, everything else you wrote to see That's if I could, faces. to see if I could use your other writing style, but I actually can't read any of it at all. Um, the, this says interfaces. That says quartz. I guess I have to scan this in now and put it on the website. I think you so, should. Okay. I'll try to remember to scan this in so our listeners can enjoy the excitement of my handwriting. Which is written on the back of my train ticket to uh, to Brussels Airport uh, for post Fosdom, so it's it's a fitting it's a fitting memento of my Fosdom visit. Fosdom's a weird conference, isn't it? It's a very strange conference. I like it. It's huge. Very big. So we were walking with RMS, and it was very very difficult because, because he kept getting stopped. For autographs and for pictures. I saw him, but I didn't bother saying hi because I just felt like he didn't need one more. Yeah. When we walked out, we, <laughs> we finally got out the doors of the K building at Fosdom. And I looked at RMS and I said, Elvis has left the building. Which I thought was pretty funny. And what did he say? He left. He left? And then he actually started asking me, what, like, how did that phrase come to be the thing they said? Huh? Which I had it wrong. Well, Fontana corrected me. Uh, I talked about Fontana. I talked with Fontana about this afterwards. So apparently, I thought the phrase was was from a, a moment, like one specific concert, 
when there was basically the fans were starting to riot and they just were trying to come right down and say, Elvis isn't here anymore, so just go away. Mm-hmm. Um, but in fact, Fontana told me they used it at every concert when he hadn't actually left the building just to tell people that he'd oh, left really? the building to make them go away <laughs> so he could leave the building. But Elvis had actually left the building. Huh. So I've been meaning to email RMS the correct etymology. And RMS sings. He does sing, not, not like Elvis. Different from Elvis. Very different from Elvis. <laughs> actually, somebody asked him to sign the program, um, and, and he was concerned that the words free software were, were smaller font than open source. So he signed the back instead. Okay. <laughs> cool. Well, anyway, I hope you enjoyed that talk. I think that was everything that we wanted to... No, it's, not, it's all my about. notes. Yeah. And, and if people know what na pushka means... We can talk about that? Yeah. Um, I really I guess I have to post this now. Um, I guess that says wood. That actually says wood. It just there's no D. Um, yeah, I don't know what it says. Sorry. So I'll, I'll scan this in if people want to read it. But it was I really want to talk about that words in the GPL would influence courts. Um, yeah, would push courts. Yes, that's what it says. It says would words in GPL would push courts. Okay. There, I there. Okay. Uh, well, I do know that Till was also talking about ancillary text. Yeah, he, he was. But he, didn't really talk, he didn't really talk whether the, that text would influence. He did. A little. What, what did he say about that? I I mean, you he was this. a little wishy washy over that too, yeah. whether it would or wouldn't. But. Yeah, well, but, but text, he, he, I remember what he said. He did say that it's something from the licensor would be very influential. Well, that's what we're talking about. Well, but the thing FAK is, is FSF and... is not the licensor. I mean, that's was sort of his point, was that F- oh, an FSF, oh, I thought you were oh, going to say the FSF FAQ would only be influential to a court for an FSF copyright. Whereas if Joe... Well, I thought he was actually talking about like puts, the you know Linux kernel developers and uh, and their views on... He talked a little bit about that, but, the, but their views differ so much, I think that's difficult. And, but he did say that... Well, that's that, what he said. That he Linus's said also that it would be right? very confusing. Right. Right. Well, he did say the Linux's statement uh, regarding the uh, regarding uh, Linux itself in the Linux license file that is relevant, right? Which that makes sense because that actually gets shipped to you with Linux, um, and so it's a document you get. And he actually talked about that too, which I think was interesting. Documents you get with distribution are much more important than documents that just are out there because you might not be aware of the documents that are just right. Out there. Fair enough. So, which I think is true in the U.S. as well. I think a court would say if if you later said our website said that. A website said that X, Y, or Z was true, and I don't think a court would be compelled by that because it wasn't really delivered. Yeah, I mean, although you do see circumstances where they say that um, that you know the sort of standards in the you know sort of trade standards are um, influential. Mm-hmm. So sort of depends. And the opposing counsel put my whole blog into evidence, all going back to my very first blog post. Oh really? Yeah, I don't do that. Yeah, no. yeah. I, I really want. I need to talk to our, our outside counsel, who's Dan Ravisher, about whether I can. I really want to release that deposition because it was. I think it would be interesting to people <laughs> to see what a deposition in a GPL enforcement case. We could do like. a show about it. Yeah, I, I should ask him I, because there was a protective order. The other side wanted a protective order. I guess they don't do those in Europe. Do they do those in Europe? I don't know. Protective. We orders. should ask Till. Yeah, things are different in Europe. I've heard. I wish we could have Till as like a regular. Correspondent, like let's ask our European correspondent <laughs> too. So yeah, I, I think the recording issues are tough for that. So I hope folks enjoyed it. And until until is a really important. Uh, he's really the mm-hmm. I think the most important European lawyer because he's doing. Well, there are other important European. Lawyers. Well, but I don't know any others other than Olivier Hugo, um, who I would say is another one. 
Um, those two are the only ones I know that are actually doing enforcement of, of GPL for, for, for the community in, mm-hmm. in Europe. I don't, do you know of any others? I'm know. thinking, I'm not sure, but I, I know that there so. are lawyers that are active, which is different. Yeah, I mean, there, there are lawyers who have recently gone to private practice. I guess we could ask them to enforce now. No, they're in private practice. I don't think they would. No, I don't think they would. But I was actually thinking of like Carlo Piana, who is, you know. I don't think he's ever. He's done some training. But I don't think work, he. I th- agree. I think he hasn't done any enforcement work. Yeah. So, uh, so I hope folks enjoyed that, and you'll hear the next show, uh, another talk probably. Great. From Fosden. Reason Freedom is produced by Dan Lynch of Pod Factory and can be found at podfactory.org. Thanks to Mike Tarantino for our theme music. This episode of Free as in Freedom is licensed under the Creative Commons Attribution Share Alike 3.0 United States license. You can follow Free as in Freedom, Bradley, and Karen on Identica, and also read Bradley's and Karen's blogs. Links can be found on the Free as in Freedom website, faith.us. That's faif.us. Are we recording? Yes.